Well, toot the horns and ring the bells. Records are falling as asset prices swell. The S&P, the Dow, even Bitcoin too. Is this a melt-up? I'm telling you, risk is back on the menu and it's spicy this time. SPACs are back and IPOs do climb. Earnings are better than we expected. All that bad news is being rejected. How did sentiment shift so quickly? Investors were scared ever so quickly. Did our outlooks really change like overnight? Or did that sideline money jump into the fight? Something's changed. We need to assess. Eyes and ears wide open on the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome back and welcome aboard. The risk train is moving down the tracks and it's taking investors with it. October has brought returns back to the U.S. stock market with the S&P 500 climbing more than 4% so far this month and the Dow and the Nasdaq not far behind. The Dow Industrials head into the week at a record high, posting three straight weeks of gains as investors have returned to equities in search of alpha. They're finding it there and there is plenty of support. Where's the money flowing? Well, $24.5 billion flowed into stocks last week, the largest flows into equities in five weeks. $5.7 billion went into bonds, while $4.2 billion came out of cash. While that's not a tidal wave, it's still a flow reversal from just a few weeks ago. According to Bank of America's Global Fund Manager Survey, portfolio managers were the least bullish they've been since October 2020, and cash levels hit the highest level in 12 months. Individual investors were also getting chilly, according to our most recent sentiment survey, and many others just like it. Earnings, though, have been mostly strong, and guidance has been pretty confident from the companies we've heard from so far. Retail spending has hung in there, despite waning consumer sentiment. Inflation is still a huge factor, especially in energy prices, but core inflation may be peaking. The pandemic may not be over, but Americans are certainly learning to live with it. If you've been on an airplane, gone to a concert, dined out in a popular part of town, seen a sporting event, or started commuting in and out of work, you know what I'm talking about. America is busy right now, and there still aren't enough workers. But the bulls are back in town, at least for now, and they usually start roaming around this time of year. The last few days of October and the first few days of November are historically some of the most bullish periods of the year for equities. November has been the best month for the S&P 500 since 1950 and over the past decade. While past performance is no guarantee of future results, it's worth paying attention to the seasonal winds. Yes, some mighty winds are blowing across the land and across the sea. That's the new Main Street singers, folks. Speaking of winds, Bitcoin had the wind at its back at the start of last week, topping $67,000 for the first time on Wednesday. Crypto enthusiasts seem pretty excited about the launch of the ProShares Bitcoin ETF, ticker BITO. That's the first U.S. Bitcoin-related ETF that gives investors exposure to Bitcoin futures traded through the CME, not the coin itself. But by the end of the week, the winds had shifted and Bitcoin fell back to $60,000, while the ProShares ETF fell over 5% in its first week. More Bitcoin-related ETFs are hitting the market in search of retail investors this week, and they will test the overall appetite for cryptocurrencies in the general population. But longtime Bitcoin holders are sitting on some enormous gains, as I'm sure they know. How about 2.8 million percent? Over the past 10 years. That's right, I had to look at that three times. No asset comes close to Bitcoin. Tesla, which has been one of the strongest stocks in history, has a 15,600% return over the past decade, doesn't even come close. The S&P 500 has returned 350%, and gold, how about 5%? 
Oh, the world has changed. Another data point backing that up? SPACs are back. If you win a SPAC game, you know what I'm talking about. Go, Cassius. Good to hear from you again. The DWAC SPAC stole the show last week when Digital World Acquisition Corp announced that it would acquire the Trump Media and Technology Group, which plans to launch a social media platform with former President Donald Trump. DWAC hit the public markets Thursday, quickly becoming a meme SPAC. It was, and still is, one of the most popular tickers on Reddit's Wall Street Bets, and it was the most popular buy order on Fidelity's online brokerage on Friday. Shares of the SPAC closed up over 800% last week, and trading was halted several times Thursday and Friday due to volume. That SPAC overshadowed WeWork's return to the public markets via SPAC. It went public at a $9 billion valuation last week. Not bad, but nothing close to the $47 billion valuation it once held. 18 SPACs went public last week, the most since March. Risk is back on the menu. Let's get set up for another busy week ahead. Nearly 40% of S&P 500 companies are expected to report results this week, and so far, the vast majority have beaten estimates. And here comes big tech. Companies including Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet are among this week's headliners, along with Twitter. Keep a close eye on Facebook this week, as the original social network will report results on the 25th and maybe a name change. Facebook is facing multiple lawsuits from state's attorney generals, the FTC, and many other parties, and its precious advertising revenue could be under pressure. Last week, Snap blamed disappointing third quarter results on changes to Apple's mobile operating system that allow users to opt out of sharing some of their data, and those changes will likely hit the bottom lines of other companies dependent on internet ad revenue as well. Facebook has been warning Apple's changes could impact its ad revenues for over a year, so we'll see if that has finally started to happen. And rumors swirled last week that the Facebook, as it was once called, will change its name again to reflect its growing focus on the so-called metaverse. That's the digital world CEO Mark Zuckerberg says we'll be living in where artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and ambient computing come together to replace actual human-to-human interaction. Here's Zuckerberg explaining the metaverse to The Verge back in July. You can kind of think about the metaverse as an embodied internet, right? where instead of just viewing content, you are in it and you, you feel present uh, with other people. It, like, as if you're in other places, having different experiences that you you couldn't necessarily do on on um, you know a, a 2D app or, or web page like dancing, you know, for example. So we'll be dancing alone with our VR headsets. How romantic! Robinhood Markets, the company behind the popular and controversial trading app, will report its latest earnings results on Tuesday, and investors will be interested to find out just how much cryptocurrencies accounted for its trading revenues in the third quarter. More than half of Robinhood's trading revenue last quarter came from crypto, and CEO Vlad Tenev said over 1 million users have joined Robinhood's waiting list for its coming cryptocurrency wallet so far. Apple reports earnings on October 28th, and the iPhone maker has already warned that iPhone 13 sales will be less than forecast due to the global chip shortage. That news has already been digested, so any updates or upside to that forecast could be pivotal for shares of Apple and the entire stock market. Shares of Apple are up 12% so far this year, underperforming the broader market. On the economic front this week, we'll get consumer confidence numbers for October on Tuesday, and they'll likely tell us that consumers aren't so confident given inflationary pressures on just about everything we buy. On Friday, we'll get reports on personal income and spending, as well as prices, which should all confirm that thesis. Inflation is sticking around like an old relative who came for the holidays and doesn't want to leave. 
This week is also being called a make-or-break week for climate change. COP26, the annual climate change summit hosted by the United Nations, begins next Sunday in Glasgow, Scotland. Representatives from world governments are convening to work out new targets for cutting carbon emissions. The goal? Preventing the average global temperature from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to levels from before the Industrial Revolution. China, Russia, Australia, and India have yet to submit new pledges for curbing their pollution or emissions. The S&P 500 energy sector has rebounded 54% this year, outpacing the 21% rise for the S&P 500. It's the best-performing sub-index in the S&P 500, but only accounts for about 2% of its weight. A wise MC once said that men lie, women lie, numbers don't. In investing, there are more than enough numbers to take into account no matter how you slice the market. But putting the right data together sets together to generate the right signals at the right time, that's where the magic comes in. One of the wizards of using multi-factor models to determine market signals is Keith McCullough, the co-founder and CEO of Hedgeye Risk Management. Hedgeye is an investment research firm that creates hedge fund quality research for everyday investors. And if you follow financial media, you know that Keith has a large presence there, a big fan base, and he is not afraid to throw some body checks on the ice. We're delighted to have him come skate with us for a few minutes on The Express. Welcome, Keith. Thanks, man. That's very kind. Very kind of you. And to see the good in a hockey player, I appreciate that. That's uh, Not everybody sees that this day and age. It's the beautiful game up north. We know that. I've known you, Keith, for a very long time, long enough to remember when you started Hedgeye back in 2008 in the flames of the financial crisis. Why did you start it? And it briefly, how has it evolved in the past 13 years or so? Like a lot of things, and I guess some people see that in me, I started because I was pissed off. One, I'd just gotten fired. So you're, I was pissed off about that. Two, I'd gotten fired for short-term reasons, which you know have to do with a hedge fund's performance. And three, what I wanted to do is prove that there was a better way. So I was big on process. You know, That's how I built my career. It's, it's always process all the time. And that process is constantly evolving and changing. But what I wanted to prove that I could show the world the best top-down macro to bottom-up micro, right down to stock picking, long and short, research process in Wall Street. And I wanted to show that not inside of a place where I just show my return at a hedge fund, but that's why I called it hedge eye. You know, I wanted to open it up, make it transparent, accountable, trustworthy, show the world exactly what it is that we do, how we execute on the process and democratize it too, so that not just accredited investors could see it, then, you know, so far, so good. Yeah, I mean, you have a full media platform at Hedgeye TV, the webinars, the investing summits, the podcasts, the newsletters, you name it, you have it. You were very early to the game for folks who do kind of what you do to create your own content, create your own network, so to speak. What made you want to do that? And how do you sort of integrate that with your business? That, Caleb, was really done incrementally. It's pretty much everything that I've always done. I never really had the vision certainly from the beginning, that Hedgeye was going to become, from a multimedia perspective, what it's become today. I didn't even know what Twitter was when I started Hedgeye. Let's just start with that, or YouTube, for that matter, was recent. So everything has really been done incrementally and gone towards like what the people need. Like what The feedback that I get on Twitter, as you know, can be love or hate. But what I love about it is it both really shows you 
an opportunity to build a better way. Again, better process, better way. So I keep, you know, kind of coming back to that. And I'm, I'm really fortunate that technology has really aided and abetted my evolution and growth because without a lot of these communication platforms, I would not be able to make this, basically this gigantic exercise in transparency come to life. That is what it's all about. And you are out there sharing the knowledge all the time. We're, we're birds of a feather in that way. You have a fascinating way of approaching the market through very, very deliberate factors, price, volume, and volatility. We know price never lies, but how do you mix in volume and volatility to generate your signals? I think a lot of people look at just price. I mean, let's be clear, and to a degree, a machine or the aggregate of the market does too. Like people chase one month price momentum, the machine, as I affectionately call it, chases one month price momentum. But one month price momentum or a 50 day moving average of one month, you know, again, these are one factor models. That's just price. So what I learned over the years, and this is really fractal teachings of Benoit Mandelbrot, it's the volume relationship and the volatility of the price. So again, when you put those three factors together, you get a much better leading indicator of what the market's telling you. Because otherwise, if you're just looking at the price and not the volume, so let's use a basic example. If the price is going up on decelerating volume and it doesn't change what I call my trend signal of the price, well, then it just logically or could be either Brownian motion, i.e. nothingness, or head fake. You know, if the price is going up, volume's going up, and volatility's breaking down in a new way, well, somebody knows something there. And I don't need to know what their inside information is or what they think they know, but there's a much richer signal in that. So, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about my signal. My signal front runs basically everything that I do. I'm subscribed to the very basic and humble realization that the market always knows before I know and always will. So that's core to, and really is the front runner of our entire process. It front runs the quads, if you want to talk about that, but it's definitely the signal that is the most proprietary thing that we've built in terms of leading indicators. I definitely want to get into the quads because that is so much of the sauce there. You also have this more quantitative way of trying to get out in front of policymakers and and what's happening out there on the macro through what you call GIP, Hedge Eyes Growth Inflation Policy Model. What is that? And what is it telling you today in this really hot inflationary environment? So just to go back to the two big things that we built, and, and, it's, and it's putting it all together. It's the recipe of the signal and the quads. The quads are also called the GIP model. So what, it, what, what are the quads? There's growth. It's a two-by-two two model. There's growth and there's inflation. And what we're trying to do is get the rates of change on a trending or on a cycle basis, we call it the full investing cycle, of those two things, we're trying to get it right. So you end up with four economic outcomes. You have quad one, quad two, quad three, and quad four, or we call them Goldilocks, for example, which is quad one, or we call it reflation in quad two, deflation is quad four, stagflation is quad three. So you have a very specific and quantitatively driven way to talk about the economy as opposed to the pablum that I hear out there. Like there are narratives for everything. You started with it. Like I go with the numbers and then my narrative is born out of the numbers. A lot of people do what I call macro tourism. They start with what the world should be or what they think politically. And there's a narrative on the way that things should be according to them or to help them or get them compensated. That is absolutely not the way to do it. I loathe that. I compete with that. And again, we're using, so when you smack them together, you know, what I'm really, it's a gigantic exercise in front running. My signal is front running the GIP model and or the quads. If I can get the right economic outcome right, the inflation you mentioned, inflation, our model signaled first, and then the quads followed, the GIP growth and inflation started to accelerate coming out of June of 2020 to get long inflation. 
So getting long commodities is an asset class. We've been bullish on inflation, hashtag inflation accelerating. It's just a rate of change. Again, it's rate of change. Anybody who's taking calculus knows what that is. So if you're in the 11th grade or higher, or if you've got, I mean, it's not that complicated. It's like, to your point, how you put it together. And the way that we've stayed with inflation accelerating is just staying with the data. What I thought the data could do, it actually didn't do. It just kept doing what it was doing. So I just kept saying that inflation is going to continue to surprise to the upside because we built a variety of predictive tracking algorithms that continue to measure and map everything from the price of coffee to cheese to obviously oil, gas, et cetera. And we have real-time rent trackers for rentals, rental inflation in America, home price inflation, all these different things. And when you slap them all into the model, you end up staying long of inflation as opposed to dogmatically using words that I've never used in my life, uh, like transitory. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. doesn't feel very transitory for folks who are filling <laughs> up the gas tank, filling up the grocery cart because they got to feed the family this weekend or planning a trip. It does feel hot. So I assume we've come out of white hot, which is quad two into sort of a quad three cooling off. Or do you feel still feel we're in your quad two where we're still white hot across a number of factors? Well, it's a really interesting one. And again, back to like, what do I know? I never know. I'm, I'm very comfortable being uncomfortable about what's going to happen next. So white hot quad two, you know, the best of quad two is when, you know, SPACs were taking moon flights and, you know, everything else, high short interest stocks were doubling by the day. That was peak or white hot quad two. So again, that's, that's reflation. Then what happened, Caleb, is in the, in the third quarter, we called it quad three in Q3, which is a stagflation. So you had slower real economic growth. GDP went from 12 basically to five. I'm rounding off the numbers. Our, our GDP now cast is at 5.33. If anybody cares, they should care because getting those numbers right before the market does or the broad consensus of economists is, is quite valuable. So you, got, you had a slowdown. The main reason for that was that you were coming off like this epic peak from post-pandemic uh, comparisons or base effects. I don't want to geek out on that, but everyone knew we we're going to slow. Not everyone knew, including me, that we would slow as fast because we had the Delta variant. So the Delta variant slowed every number, pretty much every number in our model to cycle like quad three cycle lows in August. Then those numbers started to one by one, Caleb, started to change in the back half of September. And now in October, some of these numbers are ripping. So they don't have to be white hot quad two, but we're going from quad three back to quad two. And the simple words to use are reopening and reacceleration. So when you're reopening and you get reacceleration, that definitively is growth and inflation are now accelerating from where they slow to in August. And I think a lot of people are missing that. I think a lot of people are looking back at whether it be the Atlanta Fed, which is backward looking, or Wall Street, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, everybody else, they've been cutting their numbers right when they should be raising them. So we think we have what we call, again call quad two in, in the fourth quarter. It's going to be the biggest reopening in American history from both the cash spent and services perspective. I'm quite excited about it, if you can't tell. And I generally don't get like, you know, I'm not Mr. Permable. So this is kind of an interesting one for me. It's an interesting time, too, because the first few weeks of October, we had that kind of rally back. And you see a lot of the money flow, a lot of the momentum back in across almost all sectors. We just surveyed our our readers, who are all individual investors, a lot of DIY investors out there. They got scared, real scared in September in the first couple of weeks of October for Obvious reasons, choppiness, volatility, uncertainty, Delta variant, you name it, walls of worry one after the other that can distract from your sort of putting it into these quads, putting it into the, the framework of what are the numbers telling us, not what is the fear or what is the what are we hearing in the ethos or across financial media, but what are the numbers actually telling us? It's so valuable to be able to see through that. 
which is why you're out there talking about it all the time. Craziest thing is when that's happening. And it's very hard for us as human beings, particularly somebody who doesn't have a, this kind of a process, because, you know, humans are, you know, their amygdala gets triggered, their fear centers, they go crazy you know, at precisely the wrong time. So if you look at September the 20th, when the VIX went to 28, which is a very elevated level. Now, again, if you get through 28 into the 30s in the VIX, the world could bloody well end from a stock market perspective. So it's not an inconsequential fear. But all the narratives, like instead of the Delta variant, I call them you know, variant narratives. You know, One day it was Evergrande was going to be the next Lehman Brothers. The next day it's the U.S. is going to default on its debt. The next day it's something else. And, and to me, you know, that's, that's just not good enough. I mean, and I'm sitting here and it's surreal because I have 40 people. And if I add the software engineers and all of our data scientists, I have upwards of 80 driving these predictive tracking algos and real-time data trackers, which include everything from New York subway traffic to anything that's moving in America. And my numbers are going up as, as the VIX is hitting 28. That last week in September was a very obvious week of reopening in America. And since then, like, I don't know if people are like blind or they don't watch, you know, Red Zone on Sunday. But I mean, like you go to that's a good example. I mean, you go to a Patriots game or a Chiefs game now and now they look the same for a while. They didn't. And now the people on the coast are starting to see I mean, New York City is probably the last place to reopen. And in fact, our numbers have gone straight up in the last two weeks on, on New York City traffic up across a variety of mobility metrics. It's just very obvious. to me. Yeah, we, we track the New York City economic recovery as well with New York one. And that just hit its highest level for the last 14 months. So it's happening. You feel it when you're walking around downtown here, but you do see it across America. And you're right, put on a sporting event, put on a concert footage, it's happening. So what do you do, Keith, when you start seeing the signals change in the macro data? We've had a lot of that in the past 18 months. And some have said, and you probably might agree, that it's happened in faster cycles. It's happening. It doesn't take as long as it used to for these cycles to change. What do you do tactically? Do you, you tell your clients to switch up their portfolios? How do you approach that part of it? Yeah, so going back to the GIP model and the quads, think of all four. I only have four teams I can play in fantasy football. I have quad one, two, three, or four. So I go from quad, my quad three team, where I might be playing two tight ends, playing like a different type of a game, to playing the most aggressive game that I can play. So I'll have nothing but throwing the ball, all those players are on the field. We're going for touchdowns. We're not playing for field goals. We're playing as aggressively as you can in quad two. That includes buying smaller caps. So when you, we think about it in terms of factor exposures, and you can do it with NFL players. So, okay, I want to have my three fastest wideouts. So now I want to have my most levered small cap, high beta stock that I, that I can find, whether it's an energy stock, consumer discretionary stock. I don't care. In fact, the better the story, you know, the higher the stock can go. And really, like if you look, if you look at what's happened, yeah, that's exactly what's happened. We've seen commodities, which I include Bitcoin. Some I trigger some people when I call it a commodity. If you don't like that, then just call it an asset. I'm long it. But again, Bitcoin has been one of the best things to own since the fourth quarter started, i.e. look at a chart of Bitcoin since October the 1st. But again, in the stock market or otherwise, I can buy or sell all asset classes. But in quad two is the most aggressive you can be. So I hear people saying, get defensive because I was scared in September. I'm the opposite. I'm throwing the ball down the field against scared defensive backs all day long. And that's the way that you want to be. You do not want to be long treasuries, gold, defensive stocks like consumer staples. We're short all those things. Those are the things you should be long when you're in quad four. Currently, we're in quad two, which is quite literally the opposite of that fear. Well, I thought you were going to give me some dump it in the zone and let your fastest uh, <laughs> forwards get after it and put the biscuit in the basket. But go ahead. I like the football analogy. And don't worry about geeking out on us. We can handle that. So I was going to ask you, how do your models help you evaluate 
cryptos like Bitcoin, but you just said it. You treat them like commodities. Why? Because they have the same volatility as commodities. Uh, in fact, they have higher volatility than most commodities. So when I look at an, anything that trades, you know, whether it's a stock, it's a bond, it's a commodity, or it's anything in crypto, I look at the realized volatility of that thing across all of history. And there is no question, there's no debate as to what bucket crypto falls in. It falls in the commodities bucket because that's the highest volatility bucket. For anybody who's never traded natural gas, cocoa, or coffee, I trade all three, you know exactly what I mean without having to know the volatility numbers or the studies. Very different than the volatility numbers of gold or of treasuries, for example. So again, that's why I put it there. And the way that I invest is on a, again, I'm, I'm diversified across all asset classes, picking my one of my four teams, quad one, two, three, or four, but I volatility adjust my position size. That's critical. Most people... They have no idea. Like they're just, I, I'm a hodler. I'm maxi. 100% of the capital that I have is in one thing because I started with $100 and that's just how I roll. That's not how most investors roll. We invest, again, on a volatility adjusted basis. So if something has volatility of 50 and something has volatility of 10, you know, the, the size of your position on the volatility, just I'm using very basic numbers. And again, as a, a simplification, then I'd have $1 in my invested in the 50 volatility thing. And I'd have $5 invested in the 10 volatility thing. So it's a volatility adjusting your holdings. So you don't wake up every morning having a heart attack because you have like 50 to 100 vol or volatility in your portfolio. Yeah, great point. You're just launching a simulated trading tournament at Hedgeye where you're offering $140,000 in cash and prizes. Tell us more about that and how people can get involved so they can learn as sort of they start trading for the first time or some folks who might have experience try to do this along with you. Yeah, one, like then back to the beginning of our conversation, which I appreciate that. I mean, I'm just trying to find more ways to help people manage money, their money at the highest level. You don't have to give it to somebody else for that to happen. You can, you can do this on your own. So what I wanted to do, and I wanted to incentivize people by being able to win money. So again, it's not me making the money. I'm not even allowed to participate, but we're hosting it. And what you have to do is you have to conform to some of the basic asset allocation portfolio structuring rules that I have. So again, some of the things that we talked about, which again, I give you a max size position. Because a lot of people, they do, they do this wrong, right? They put all their money in three stocks or all their money in two crypto or one. And it's like, that's not how we're trying to teach you to not, you know, never break rule number one. It's not my rule. It's Warren Buffett's. And don't lose the money that you have. Don't so start with not losing money. And then let's compound returns across cycles from there. So, so really that competition is set up to be a coaching session as well. So as soon as we see who's winning, I'm going to, I'm going to interview them, have them explain what they were thinking, how they did it. I'm quite excited about it because I love coaching the people. I mean, that, that to me is like, I don't have to make another dollar in my life. If I can coach, you know, 250,000 people to do this the right way, I am, I've succeeded. Coach at heart. I've seen you coaching out there, your, your kids, uh, hockey games as well. (laughs) Keith, you know, we're, we're a, uh, a site that was built on investing terms, on investing education. What's your favorite investing term and why? Favorite investing term. I would go with quads or the quads, you know, because we made it up, you know, and so we invented the quads. So that's my favorite. So much valuable information. Folks, again, follow Keith on Twitter, on the social media platforms, or go to hedgeye.com to learn more about their trading contest and uh, follow them on their newsletter. So much good stuff on the site. And Keith, I've learned so much from following you over the years. I really appreciate you coming on the Investopedia Express. I love having conversations with you. You know, God bless Investopedia and, and thanks for having me on. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Z in South Ozone Park, New York. What's up, Queens? 
Z suggests short squeeze this week, and we like that term given a recent report by the SEC on meme stock mania. Well, what's a short squeeze? According to my favorite website, a short squeeze is an unusual condition that triggers rapidly rising prices in a stock or other tradable security. For a short squeeze to occur, the security must have an unusual degree of short sellers holding positions in it. The short squeeze begins when the price jumps higher unexpectedly. The condition plays out as a significant measure of the short sellers coincidentally decide to cut losses and exit their position. They got squeezed, and the losses can be significant depending on how large their short position was. Well, the Securities and Exchange Commission spent the last eight months analyzing the meme stock madness around stocks like AMC and GameStop from earlier this year to determine if there was any foul play. The agency submitted a lengthy report on the matter entitled The Staff Report on Equity and Options Market Structure Conditions in Early 2021. I read it so you don't have to. And the cliff notes are pretty short. The SEC didn't turn up anything useful, but it wants more reporting on short sales to better track these dynamics. Short interest on U.S. stocks has come down quite a bit since last spring, but there are still a bunch of stocks that have the shorts. Here are the five most shorted stocks by share float in October. Big Five Sporting Goods, Workhorse Group, Blink Charging, Root Inc., and Beam Global. Smart suggestion, Z. We'll be sending you a pair of the handsome Investopedia socks for your next stroll down Rockaway Beach. Well, we're going to beam ourselves back to 1929 on the way out today, October 24th, 1929 to be more specific, which is also known as Black Thursday around Wall Street. On October 24th, 1929, the stock market opened 11% lower than the previous day's close, and panic selling ensued throughout a heavy day of trading. Black Thursday is considered the first day of the great stock market crash of 1929, which continued until October 29th. It was a rough week on the corner of Pine and Wall Streets. Here's Vera Pilatier, a New Yorker who was only seven years old at the time, remembering how she and her family heard about the stock market crash on Black Thursday. This comes from the BBC's 2018 documentary on the 1929 crash. 1929, when the stock market crashed, I was a very young lady, just seven years old. However, I do remember bits and pieces of that day very clearly in my memory. We didn't have many means of communication. And when something extraordinary happened, the papers would put out an extra, as that that's what it was called, an extra for two cents. And the little boys in their little pea caps would come running through the streets, screaming, extra, extra, read all about it. And invariably, somebody in the house would go down and buy a daily for two cents, and then we would know what happened. And that's how we found out about the crash. Imagine that, not knowing the news until you bought the extra edition of the evening paper for two cents. Compare that to the metaverse whenever we get there. I'd rather stay here with you on this train. Keep it steady and keep it smart this week, and we'll talk with you again a little further on down the line. <laughs>